All right, so I think we have it on the authority of a doctor today that we're still allowed to eat Pop-Tarts. Um, I mentioned to you as the kids are leaving, uh, I'll just uh, remind you that um, uh, I come down from a mountain. It wasn't Mount Sinai. My face is not glowing. It came down from a mountain in North Carolina um, where, where about a third or a half of, uh, of the people of incarnation are uh, gathering with people um, from every tribe, tongue, and, and nation. I think there's something like 62 nations represented at this World's Missions Conference. And uh, it's been an amazing time. So I know they're thinking about you guys and praying for you. Uh, so think about and pray for them. Um, I, I just have to say, um, it might seem like I would feel extra nervous this morning because I don't have Pastor John's help. But what I'm really nervous about is that I don't have my wife, Carissa. Um, you guys are lucky that my clothes match today. I'm just going to let you know. Uh, so I need to pray today more than ever. So please pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this time to gather as your people and uh, as we open up your word. Would it be as if we're sitting at the feet of Christ, whose spirit inspired these words? Thank you, Lord, that you stand outside of time to teach us who you are and to show us your ways. Would you show us your way and show us your face this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been going through this sermon series on the life of Moses, and this morning we come to... Um, one of the central passages in Exodus, really um, one of the central passages in the entire Bible, the story of the Passover. You know, it's been said that a good film director shows rather than tells. You ever heard that before? Show, don't tell. That means that they allow the audience to experience the story through action rather than having to connect all the interpretive dots through dialogue which can be kind of condescending, right? I mean, I've been, read, uh, I've been watching recently uh, the new Rings of Power series on Amazon. Shout out, anybody? Um, and and what, what they need to do is they need to show you that there's a connection between the lost city of Numenor and the city of Gondor, which was built by the Numenorians, but they don't need to tell you, they need to show you, right? Now, on the other hand, there are other forms of communication, valid forms, like lectures or sermons, that usually tell rather than show. And that has its own appropriate place. At least I hope so. But when we come to a religious ritual, like the Passover, we get show and tell, don't we? We get the best of both worlds. The ritual itself is a kind of living reenactment of a historical event, but it's a mysterious kind of reenactment. It doesn't interpret itself or offer as many clues as to what it might mean as a movie does. So why should the Israelites remove all the yeast from their houses? Why should the lamb they choose be a young, unblemished male? The law of Moses anticipates such questions. Exodus 12, 26 says, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. And it goes on to explain to the parents how to make the interpretive connection for their children between the ritual and salvation history. Would you please grab a pew Bible and turn with me to Exodus 12. It's on page 53 of your pew Bible. 
And the first thing we notice if we just zoom out for a second is that the Lord institutes the Passover and gives the proper interpretation in verses 1 through 28, even before the historical event that it commemorates in verses 29 through 42. Isn't that interesting? I mean, what could a feast of unleavened bread possibly mean to Israelites prior to them having to leave Egypt in such haste that they had no time to put yeast in their bread? But the Lord gives the ritual beforehand, both as an expression of his sovereignty over these events that would follow, and also as an authoritative interpretation of it. And do we not find a major echo of this in the New Testament? Indeed, through the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus gives the authoritative, enduring interpretation of the cross even before he dies for the sins of the world, does he not? He said things like, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Luke twenty-two nineteen, And this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, 28. In this way, Jesus follows this pattern of ritual revelation that Yahweh already establishes here in Exodus. First, the ritual is given, then the event itself takes place, and then there's this pattern of perpetual remembrance, this ordinance of perpetual participation in that ritual for God's people. Around the time of the Reformation, the great Bible scholar Erasmus asked, what good is it to go to the Lord's table if one does not know what it means? Erasmus understood that a ritual, that a sacrament, is both show and tell. So in the sermon, right, uh, the gospel is just spoken. But at the Lord's table, our redemption is dramatized. But it's not just a bare ritual. Jesus has given us the authoritative commentary which we also repeat each week. And just as subsequent generations of Israelites would view the Passover not merely as a dramatization, but as a true participation in that saving event with their ancestors, so the Eucharist is, as the Apostle Paul would put it, a true participation in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So this morning we're going to dive deeper into the Passover, and hopefully along the way, gain a deeper understanding of both the Lord's Supper and ultimately the cross of Christ. So let's start from the top. What exactly is the Passover? The Passover is the dramatic means. It's the drastic means by which God delivered Israel from the oppressive and dehumanizing yoke of slavery in Egypt. Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, Moses would say to the people in Exodus 13, 3, after the deed was done. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. In other words, it wasn't by sort of political negotiation that God delivered Israel out of the house of slavery, right? Not by giving a new code of ethics, not by a new philosophy of life, but by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Biblical faith centers upon a God that does stuff. 
not just a God who teaches stuff. You know, uh, the Buddha said that his teachings were like a raft that help alleviate suffering in human beings. But he said, well, once you use the raft to get over the river, you don't have to take the raft with you, right? So he's like, hey, look, I'm just a good ancient psychologist, but you, there's nothing super special about me. You don't have to take my teachings with you. In contrast, Jesus was much more audacious and self-referential, wasn't he? He claimed that he had come not simply to teach, but to do stuff. He said, I am. Now, let's just pause there and consider the audacity. We already heard the sermon of the burning bush where God reveals his name as I am. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. John 6, 51. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's what Jesus said. And just as the Christian calendar would come to center upon this word made flesh, the God who is pierced, who bleeds and is buried, the firstborn son who tramples over death by his death, so the Passover would become a sort of calendar shifting Independence Day for the Jewish people, the foundational act of Israel's national identity. This is why God declares to them in Exodus 12, 2, if you look there, he says, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. See, it's a new beginning. It shall be the first month of the year for you. What exactly is the Passover? The Passover is a feast. It's a memorial day. It's a statute forever. All three of these are mentioned in verse 14. And what this feast memorializes is the tenth and final plague of the Exodus, when the Lord struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians and quite literally passed over the firstborn of the Hebrews. Now, we'll discuss the moral conundrum of this another time. Indeed, we've actually already done a lot of teaching on the judgment of God and how, unlike human beings, God is the rightful judge who knows the human heart. So I'm going to save that for another sermon, or you can talk to me after service if you want. But for now, it's important to note that this was not the first time in the plagues where the Lord made a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. For example, in the plague of darkness, Exodus 10.23, it says to the Egyptian, that the Egyptians did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Isn't that interesting? God makes a distinction in terms of light. Where does the light come from? It's interesting in the book of Revelation. There is no more sun, but it says the lamb is the light of the city of God. But unlike the plague of darkness, the Lord makes it clear that the Passover will require the active participation of the people of God. Each household will need to choose a pure, spotless lamb. Verse 5 stipulates that it must be a male lamb without blemish. And after sacrificing the lamb, they are to take a bunch of hiss, hiss, hyssop, hyssop, a bushy shrub. <laughs> it's verse 21. Dip it in the blood and touch the lintel and the two doorposts of their house with the blood of the lamb. 
And then they're forbidden to go out of the door of their houses until morning. Verse 23 continues, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So to put it simply, the Hebrews were saved by the blood of the Lamb. They were saved by the spotless Lamb. As the popular Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, the Lamb died instead of you. And in this sense, the Passover is also the inaugural act of the Jewish sacrificial system, setting the pattern of animal sacrifice that the sons of Aaron are about to receive at Mount Sinai and will not be fulfilled until the day that Jesus says, it is finished. What exactly is the Passover? The Passover is the culmination of a supernatural showdown between the God of heaven and the idols of Egypt, including, of course, Pharaoh himself. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, the Lord declares in verse 12, and I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Indeed, throughout the story of the plagues, as Peter taught us last week, the Lord completely nullifies the gods of Egypt, exposing their impotence and inefficacy and simultaneously establishing his kingship, his sovereignty over heaven and earth. So just to summarize, our first question was, what exactly is the Passover? The Passover is the foundational act of Israel's national identity, the drastic means by which God rescued the Hebrews from generations of slavery. Through it, God makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Hebrews, those marked by the blood of the lamb, thus foreshadowing the sacrificial system, and by it, God executes judgments upon the pagan gods. That's what the Passover is. The Passover was the final blow to Pharaoh's crumbling kingdom to Pharaoh's crumbling ego. The moment where he finally waves the white flag. Look with me at verses 31 through 32. He says, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And then he adds a peculiar request. And bless me also. Isn't that interesting? The same Pharaoh who began his exchange with Moses, saying in, in essence, who is this, this God, this Yahweh of yours? I've never heard of him. Is now like, will you put a, a good word for him with me? And what we see here is really fear, not faith. As James 2.19 puts it, even the demons believe and shudder. And the rest of the Egyptians do likewise. Verse 33 says the Egyptians were urgent. Ironically, the Hebrew verb here is hazak. It's the same word used to describe the hardening of Pharaoh's heart against letting them go. So the Egyptians 
were urgent, just, their, their hearts were just as urgent to see them go as the Pharaoh was to keep them earlier, right? And the Hebrew people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. If you guys don't leave, we might not, there might not be anything left. And what once seemed impossible, that the Egyptians would ever let their slaves go, their precious beasts of burden, who did all their work for them, is now going down. And then some. The Egyptians sent the Hebrews along, loaded up with silver and gold jewelry and clothing. Verse 35. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. A fulfillment of God's promise to Moses at the burning bush. God was like, you don't think they're going to let you leave, do you? Watch what I do. Not only will they let you go, they're going to pay you to leave. And their former captors, the Egyptians, are like, hey, look, guys, uh, <laughs> we don't want any more trouble, okay? You want silver? How about some gold? Just, just go away or we're all going to die. But before this moment of victory, before this unqualified surrender on the part of the Pharaoh, the Hebrew people first had to experience an increase in suffering. That's part of the story, isn't it? They had to make bricks without straw. They had to feel the sting of the whip all the more intensely. Don't ask me why God uses suffering to sanctify us, to make us more holy, to make us more like Jesus, but he does. You know, sometimes the commandments of God seem so impractical, don't they? So impossible, so out of step with the challenges of modern life, with the pharaohs of modern world? How can I be expected not to lust after others in my heart when we just live with a world in a world full of salacious images everywhere we look? How can I be expected to give when the cost of living keeps going up? How can I be expected to rest when the world never sleeps? How can we be expected to raise our kids in the knowledge and love of the Lord when the public school system seems to work actively against us? How can we be expected to bring the gospel to the unreached people groups and these, when these parts of the world, you know, they don't have hospitals or sanitation or air condition? How can we be expected to do that? There's a couple who gave a testimony at this conference and uh, they, they went overseas and it was a disaster. And they, they didn't have a comfortable place to stay. And the wife had her fourth baby while they were there. And then COVID happened and they got shipped to another country temporarily. And they're trying to figure out what to do. Guys, this is what it takes to fulfill the Great Commission. Not, not oh, things aren't going well, so this must not be God's will. I, I don't see that in the Bible. But in our modern Western aversion to suffering, we would seek to remove the cross from our faith. To rationalize to ourselves, God couldn't want that. He knows that that will just make things more difficult for me. Well, whoever said it was supposed to be easy? Certainly not Jesus. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. John 12, 24. You know, it's interesting that prior to this point, Pharaoh had actually offered to let the Israelites go and worship. 
But there was always a catch. If you flip back with me to Exodus 8, verse 25. After the plague of the flies, it says, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. In other words, you can go, just stay within the boundaries of Egypt. And in this offer from Pharaoh, you can almost hear the primordial echo of the serpent in the garden. Did God really say, you must not eat of any tree in the garden? And how easy it would have been for Moses to rationalize at this point. He and his people were suffering. You know what? It's probably good enough. This is probably really what the Lord meant. But recognizing the temptation for what it was, Moses replied in verse 26, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? So Moses tries to reason with Pharaoh. Do you ever do that with your friends or coworkers? Try to explain your actions without giving the real reason? I've done that many times. But in the end, Moses lands on the real point. Verse 27, he says, We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. That's it, right there. As he tells us. Obedience to the Lord was the real, the most salient reason. Pharaoh, he tries this tactic again and again, offering to let them go after the plague of locusts, but without their women and children. Depending on how annoying their kids were that day, depending on whether they had gotten in an argument with their spouse, it might have been tempting, right? This is uh, Exodus 10, verses 10 through 11, just joking. Um, He offers to let them go after the plague of darkness, but without their herds and cattle to sacrifice. Chapter 10, verse 24. Do you know, beloved, if the Lord commands something, he will make a way for you to obey it. You know that? You might be wrestling with obeying the Lord. Either that or like Moses or even more like our Lord and Savior, we must be willing to take the lashes, to bear the cost, to become obedient to the point of death. There are no half measures. Jesus is Lord. Pharaoh's not Lord. The pharaohs of the world don't get to dictate the terms of obedience to the living God. One commentator put it this way. She said, God does uh, does make a way out of no way. He will fight for us and raise us out of the depths of despair. God is unchangeable, therefore. As he made a way for Israel, he can make a way no matter what the need is in every generation that will look unto him and to every person who believes in him. Amen. I want to conclude this morning by teasing out a bit more the relationship between the Passover and the Lord's Supper, between the 10th plague and Calvary. For example, notice that we continue to use unleavened bread for Holy Communion when we gather around the table. It's a kind of echo of the Passover. And it seems to be from what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, that that's what the church in Corinth was using for communion as well. Likewise, regarding the meat of the Passover lamb, Exodus 12.10 says, anything that remains until morning you shall burn. So they weren't simply to kind of leave it or throw it away. They were either to consume it entirely or burn it up. Now you may have never noticed 
that we don't throw away consecrated bread and wine here or dump it down the drain, but instead we prefer to consume it or if there's too much wine to consume, then we're permitted to pour it reverently into untrodden earth. Something that's been consecrated for a holy purpose should not then just be discarded as if it's common once again. That's the principle at work. Or consider the prohibition in Exodus 12, verses 43 through 49. If you look there, it says, No uncircumcised person shall eat the Passover. So circumcision, the mark of belonging to the covenant community, to the covenant community in the old covenant, was a prerequisite, I can't speak this morning, for men to participate in the Passover meal. You see this? In fact, verse 43 adds that no foreigner shall eat it. But again, let's get this straight, internet trolls. This prohibition was always for religious and never for racial or ethnocentric reasons. Notice that verse 48 adds that if a non-Israelite sojourner is willing to be circumcised, in other words, if they're willing to freely commit themselves to the Lord and to his law, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native in the land. Now, of course, the new covenant opens things up even more, but we see it in embryonic form here, that the people of God are to include all nations. Similarly, those who wish to receive the Eucharist, both men and women, must first commit uh, to entering into the new covenant through the rite of baptism. In fact, it may interest you to know that in the early church, after the newly baptized Christians received Holy Communion for the first time, they would then offer them a second chalice filled with milk mixed with honey, symbolizing that they had crossed over into the promised land as it talks about in Exodus 13.5. But the connections run even deeper. Deeper, I submit to you, than could have been planned out by even the most gifted movie director. Deeper than we will be able to comprehend, though we return to this text the rest of our lives. Of course, the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus Christ in the midst of a Passover Seder. He said to his disciples in Luke 22.15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus was a pious Jew. He kept the feast days. But this one was a Passover of cosmic significance. For while the Passover lambs were being chosen that week, the Lamb of God entered the temple. While the firstborn sons of Israel were being redeemed with silver, the Son of God was being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The Israelites were commanded not to break the bones of the Passover lamb, Exodus 12, 46. And likewise, Jesus' self-offering upon the cross was so complete that his legs didn't need to be broken like the thieves who were next to him. As John 19, 36 explained, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled not one of his bones will be broken. And you know why his bones didn't need to be broken? Because when he was dying for your sins, he didn't resist the will of God. He didn't cease to love you to the last. Again, as with any Passover meal, the Lord's Supper included unleavened bread, 
but Jesus taught that the bread was his body. As with any Passover meal, the Lord's Supper included wine, but what would cause Jesus to refer to the chalice as the new covenant in his blood? What would it lead, what would, what would lead to a first century Jewish man like Paul, a converted Pharisee, to proclaim in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrifice. Therefore, let us keep the festival. Is it not plain for all who have eyes to see? The cross of Christ is the perfect fulfillment of everything that the Passover imperfectly stood for. The Passover is good, it's beautiful, but it's just a shadow. The reality is Christ himself. Do we not see Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us for the sins of the world? If his blood is painted over the lintel of your heart, then you will be saved on the last day. He will have already absorbed the judgment for you. But like the Passover, the cross requires active participation. The offering itself is not dependent upon us. But in order for the benefits to be applied, it must be what? Received by faith. In the cosmic purposes of God who stands outside of time, he has prepared the world for his son through his redemption of Israel and given to us the most beautiful referent to the cross of Christ. Behold the beauty of the mysterious purposes of God. Amen? I mean, who could come up with something like this? Even if it were one author, much less dozens of authors stitched together over thousands of years, who writes a book like this? And this is the oldest and truest sermon in the book, beloved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you offered yourself for us so completely that the soldiers didn't even need to break your knees. Thank you for your deep love for us, Lamb of God. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died for the sins of the world. Would we trust in that this morning? Would we receive that this morning by faith? Paint the blood of your pure spotless Lamb over our lives, Lord. Lord, we look back at the Egyptians, and we see the oppression, and it, it, it leads us to righteous indignation. But Lord, we are the ones. We are the ones who need your sacrifice. Not just somebody who existed in the past, not somebody else. Thank you, Lord, that you love sinners such as us. Make a way for us to come into your presence by your most holy sacrifice. I thank you, Lord, that you invite us weekly to 
participate in the body and blood of the most precious lamb.